Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, unfortunately, Soapbox Knockerainer. This is one of those podcasts. I'm, I'm sorry ahead of time. This is one of those podcasts. I hope you are prepared for ranting Corey, because we have plenty of opportunities for Corey rants in this episode, especially as we start by discussing our favorite tech topic, cryptocurrency. And with that, let's go ahead and just get on in and get it over with. So we get to start this week with revisiting one of Corey's and my favorite topics, uh, or at least, you know what? Honestly, I, I talk a lot of crap, but I, well, you do like the topic. I like the topic. <laughs> you know, blockchain technology is very interesting to me. Um, cryptocurrency has some interesting uses, uh, but I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't be well, lying. It would be very interesting one day. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't be lying if I didn't say I felt a massive amount of schadenfreude anytime uh, a story like the one we're about to discuss pops up. Uh, so last week, we saw the latest in a really increasingly uh, frequently frequently increasing trend of attacks against decentralized cryptocurrency trading platforms. Uh, so last week, a unknown attacker made off with $322 million dollars worth of cryptocurrency from the popular trading platform called Wormhole. By the, by the way, can I just point out, Mark, that if you're going to call something Wormhole, you got to expect putting stuff in it may make it disappear. <laughs> you know, maybe it was an inside job. Who knows? <laughs> um, before we jump into it's this... called Wormhole. Yep. Um, for the uh, anyone that hasn't listened to one of our podcasts in the past few months or years where we've discussed cryptocurrency, there's a few things, a few topics that we have to get out of the way first. Uh, the first is the concept of a smart contract. Uh, so cryptocurrency and blockchain tech started with Bitcoin way back in the day. I mean, it feels like way back in the day. I don't think it's even been around for 10 years yet. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but with Bitcoin... Uh, it is a mm, true... 2009, I think it's 10 years. Okay, yeah, there we go. I think 2009 was when I experimented with the the Bitcoin I can't find. Math checks out. Uh, so Bitcoin is a true just like distributed ledger where basically its only function that it can do is say that uh, wallet address XYZ transferred this amount of Bitcoin to wallet address ABC. So the entirety of the Bitcoin blockchain is just a whole bunch of transactions of percentages or pieces of Bitcoins being moved around from one wallet address to another. Uh, these wallet addresses are just basically cryptographic public keys where the owner of the wallet has the associated private key, which allows them to sign new transactions so that you can say, yes, I'm the owner of this wallet address and I'm validating that I am sending one Bitcoin to Corey's wallet. And the blockchain is just a history of all these transactions dating towards the back of time. So Bitcoin in general is pretty dumb, pretty simple. I, I, I will say the blockchain is an immutable, cryptographically secured and validated history. So while it, you might hear the term ledger, the blockchain is just a public ledger. But what's unique about it is if it's done correctly, it's immutable. Everyone can see it. It's the type of public ledger that 
not just the accountant has, but everyone in the world can look at it. And it's safe for everyone in the world to look at it because the accountant, you know, accountant worries about other people erasing his ledger and writing something different. This is one that can be public and immutable because all that encryption and cryptography are what make it mathematically secure to share publicly. I mean, I'm making it high level, but we, we say it's just a ledger, but it really is a specialized ledger that really is secure as far as the ledger. And goes. that immutability comes from basically as long as more than 51% of the participants in this blockchain are good faith actors, they're, you know, they are agreeing to the actual transactions. It is impossible for someone to go through and make a change to the history of the blockchain. Now that said, there are some attacks against this, like there's the quote unquote 51% attack, where if a single person or organization can amass 51% of the mining capabilities for a blockchain, they can ultimately rewrite history. Uh, we actually saw that happen with a few off branches of different crypto coins. Uh, Ethereum Classic had an issue with this. A few other like smaller crypto coins have had issues with that historically where you know, all the mining power gets concentrated with a few people and they can go back and say, actually, you know what, here's what the transactions really were. And because of that, those problems, the immutability has been te technically changed before when the owners decided to fork, you know, when everyone decided that something bad happened, that it really shouldn't be the way it is. Forking just means you kind of start over uh, with a new one <laughs> that's different than the one that you previously and said that was actually immutable. <laughs> happened even with... Uh... Yep, that actually happened with the the second most valuable uh, cryptocurrency, Ethereum, uh, quite a few years ago, where there was a big vulnerability in this distributed app on it called the DAO that allowed someone to make off with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Ethereum at the time. And Ethereum was still relatively new. This was basically like tens of percentages of all of the mined Ethereum were stolen in this attack. And so it was enough at the time for... Uh, participants in the Ethereum blockchain to want to rewrite history. They did what Corey said. They did a fork, which basically uh, split off the blockchain uh, to a new version where that transaction that stole all the cryptocurrency didn't exist. And they continued on. That's actually where this whole Ethereum classic cryptocurrency came out of. That is the remnants of the old Ethereum where that fork didn't happen. That hack still exists. Uh, but in the current main branch of Ethereum, that DAO hack doesn't actually exist anymore. It actually caused a lot of controversy, understandably, because it went completely it against the immutability. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the whole point is it's supposed to be immutable. By the way, you started with the the, the definitions that I think all cryptocurrencies have in blockchain and, and the keys, but you mentioned smart contracts. That That's not in all cryptocurrency, but it is in Ethereum. So why don't you talk a little bit more about smart So contracts? while Bitcoin is a pretty basic dumb ledger that is distributed and immutable thanks to the power of tons of mining power, uh, Ethereum is maths. actually- Yeah, maths. Uh, Ethereum builds on that principle and actually has this concept of smart contracts. And you can think of a smart contract as basically distributed ap applications, where instead of just sending a transaction of me sending a Bitcoin to Corey's wallet address, now I can upload an entire functional program. Uh, they're typically written in a language called Solidity and then compiled into bytecode. And basically, I publish a whole application to the Ethereum blockchain, which now anyone can interact with. Now, it could be a simple application of us. Uh, anyone can call this function that then returns a hello there uh, response to it, or it can be something a lot more complex like CryptoKitties, which was effectively the very first NFT ever created, where now an entire application exists on the blockchain. 
Uh, it's responsible for yeah. minting new coins or minting new NFTs. I guess I'm honored that Mark even has a Corey SecAdept Crypto yep. Kitty. I guess we do. And I think it's like a pretty rainbow cute <laughs> yeah, one thanks also. for that. Just how I love to be branded. Rainbows and sparkles. <laughs> so by the way, smart contracts, I mean, yeah, smart contracts are very cool. But to be quite honest, and I guess we'll get to that, at the highest level, to me, smart contracts, while they add coolness to Ethereum and its capabilities... To me, they were the weakness too. I, I mean, Bitcoin is pretty simple. It has lots of problems with, now it's at a point where it can't generate transactions fast enough, the power cost, it, lots of problems. But but the point is, smart contracts had a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with currency. They can just be you writing a program for fun, but using this platform to do it. And I think everyone in security knows that complexity is kind of the adversary to security. The more gears, the more inputs, the more more user interactions you add to something, the more potential that's for vulnerabilities, exactly which I'm it. sure like, we'll get smart, into. They're super powerful. That's why you see so many of these applications built on Ethereum. That's why this abomination that is non-fungible tokens uh, was spawned on Ethereum. Like You can build a whole lot, including additional coins uh, what they call tokens on Ethereum as well. Like it's massively powerful. And it's the reason that Ethereum is a blockchain tech and Ether as the coin is as valuable as it is right now. But like you said, like it's basically just programming. I also think that value is is a problem though, because I think it's a, a fiat currency's value needs to be in the currency itself. And I think Ether will have more and more problems over time because of the fact that it's tied to you know, well, I mean, at the the base level, Ether, you can contracts. it is still transmitted as a a me sending you this much Ether. Like you can still do yeah, those. Yeah. It, it, it does all the same stuff. Yeah. The problem is yeah. all these applications that are built on it, where you're not actually trading Ethereum, you're trading like a token that represents an amount of Ether that is stored in the smart contract. Where at any point you can then redeem that token for Ethereum back out of that smart contract. And we've been finding over the past few years is like Ethereum development has just skyrocketed that a lot of the same issues with general programming and applications still apply and that there are bugs. And when people find these bugs, they will exploit them. And the big shining issue with Ethereum is that immutability means that you can't just patch the bug and like, you know, update your database to undo the hack. If someone exploits your smart contract, uh, it's done. Like that vulnerability, that exploit sits there until the end of time and all the money is permanently gone. And there's in general, no way to get that uh, money back. And so in the case of this attack against wormhole, like it ended up being, so I guess backing up one more time, uh, wormhole, it's, it's considered a, a DeFi, a distributed finance smart contract. And its main, uh, faculty is to allow you to trade Ethereum for, I'm sorry, Corey's dog is in the background just standing there, super cute, and it's really throwing me off. But anyways. Oh, I can't even see. It's super cute. Um, so Wormhole, it allows you to take Ethereum on the Ethereum blockchain and trade it for other cryptocurrencies on other blockchains. Uh, so in this case, uh, the name of it was Solana as another blockchain uh, crypto. And it works by having a contract on each of those blockchains where as a user on Ethereum, I can interact with that contract and deposit an amount of Ether into this smart contract and then interact with the Solana one and then withdraw a certain amount of Solana. And it communicates each other by using these signed transactions, basically, where on the Solana contract, as long as the signature checks out, uh, 
it knows that it was the Ethereum contract that validated it, should all be good for you to withdraw. So the attacker, to go at a 10,000-foot level, basically figured out that um, they were able to control an input into that signing function of the contract and basically use their own signature verification function. So they were able to trick one half of this bridge contract into thinking that it had signed the transaction for the other half, when in reality, the attacker just signed some bogus transactions saying they had uploaded 120,000 Ether, and now they were withdrawing that same amount from in Solana. And so they did this. They basically tricked the Solana side of the contract into thinking they'd deposited 120,000 Ether, which then allowed to, them to withdraw that amount of Solana. And then through the normal contract, the non-exploit, they then uploaded that Solana, which then allowed them to withdraw the real Ethereum from the Ethereum smart contract side of this, this whole bridge. And it ended up being, again, $322 million stolen. Um, in response, the maintainers of Wormhole, they've offered a $10 million bug bounty in exchange for returning the funds. I mean, that's only going to if it was a, you know, we've seen actually a few times where it is a white or gray hat hacker that exploits the vulnerability. Uh, they actually exploit it, steal the money. So I'll that, wait till talking points, but I don't like that. Yeah. I, I'll wait till talking points, but I, I don't like this at all, re even if it were a white hat. You know, th this person did something without asking first. And I get to wormhole 10 million is less than 322. But you're basically saying, hey, criminals, come out there and hack me and I'm not going to prosecute you because it's more important for me to give you a little money and get some back. I, I just think it's a bad precedence. And the, the person that did this is a criminal, regardless of their excuse for doing it. So all signs point to this particular attack actually being a criminal. There doesn't look like there's any communication with them returning the funds. There was like, I think, six months ago. I, and I, by the way, I, I want to be clear, if this were a white hat that later on says, oh, he did it for research, I still think the white hat, the quote unquote white hat is a criminal. So I do period. actually, I, that's, that's my personal I hear feeling. what you're saying, but I also, there's one caveat to this where I feel like it's an important one that might at least give them some credibility to a white hat hacker exploiting something like this and taking the money and returning it later. And that is like, let's assume that uh, not every developer on a project is a good person. And because there's a lot of anonymity that goes on with cryptocurrency, anyone can create a wallet and you have no idea who actually owns that wallet until they go cash out. Like if I were a white hat researcher and I found a critical vulnerability in a smart contract that could let me steal hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency from it. Uh, and I was concerned that like if I reported it, some developer on the inside then on the other they would take advantage of would it. take advantage of it anonymously and steal it and be like oh crap someone got there if first. that were the case you could still have done it with one dollar transaction and did it to the press and not the vendor and you wouldn't have to steal 322 million dollars to get the point across the once you've done this hack whether you're stealing one dollar or ten dollars if you disclose the press and not to the vendor, you still make your point. Well, so my point is with a smart I just, contract. I, I feel whatever, like that's a, a, a yeah, whatever happens is on there forever. So if I exploit it for one dollar and that you know blows out that there's this vulnerability, if they don't have time to patch it before someone else notices that, they'll drain it instead. And so as a gray hat well, hacker, that was three hundred and twenty-two million. Correct. That that didn't drain wormhole. That just stole a lot of money. <laughs> correct. But like as a a gray hat white hat hacker, I might like exploit the vulnerability to take the money with the intention of returning it once the vulnerability is fixed. And we have seen that a few times. 
It's basically like a I like a custodian of it until it gets fixed, so that someone else can't hop on my knowledge and then steal. I it. I like that we're having a debate, but it all sounds like excuses to me. Because another thing this person could have simply done is report it to the authorities, and then they wouldn't have to have stolen anything, and the authorities could take care of monitoring it after the fact if an internal developer took advantage. So, so about that point, uh, like sounds like it saying... sounds like vigilante excuses, which I think will be a theme of another story to me too. I think this is actually a good topic. So you're saying report it to the authorities, and like what happens then if they you know go to the developers and a developer anonymous anonymously creates a. Uh, it's, a, it's an immutable blockchain. Yep. They would see the transaction. <laughs> Correct. And the wallet would eventually have to be used. And now you have people, including three and four letter agencies, which if, you know should also include fintech, fin, you know, the financial authorities. I think it could all be traced and you could catch the developer. And you, you yourself, if you really were a good guy, you wouldn't have to have broken the law in the first place. That is a good point. And that... so I think I... I, I think good guys should act like good guys, not bad guys, and regardless of their intention. I do actually. And don't justify the means. That's another interesting topic that we've talked about before. Is exploiting a smart contract like this breaking the law? So if it's written in a way where, you know, this is the way the code works and it's just I use the code in a way that like it was written to do but if if that were the case every vulnerability in the world would be it's this is the the computer fraud and abuse act doesn't even go in that level of detail any unauthorized computer access even if i have your login mark even if you gave me your login but i used it to access watchguards materials using your login and i wasn't authorized to that's illegal <laughs> So yes, using a vulnerability or a mistake in code to do something that is technically unauthorized access, this user shouldn't have had the authority to take this money. <laughs> so I, I believe I believe under the, uh, but by the way, part of that is because the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is way too general. And unfortunately, there's some, some gray area stuff that probably fall under it too. But yeah, I, I think it, it's pretty simple with the Computer Fraud and Excuse Act. It's unauthorized access. It doesn't really care about the means. In fact, it doesn't even have to be technically a flaw. It just is you gain, you you used access that you weren't allowed to. Is accessing a blockchain that is distributed across a thousand hosts the same as accessing like a server, for example? Like I get what you're saying. If I hack a web server and steal all PayPal's money, but if I... Interact did with did, the did someone else did 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 another did this cryptocurrency belong to another person that attached to their private key? The answer to that is yes. Was this person really supposed to be authorized to transfer it to their own key, whether or not it was built into a bad smart contract? The answer is no. The person that owned it had no chance to say you're allowed to take this money. So I, I think it qualifies as unauthorized access. But I'll let the whole audience know we're just doing this for fun. Neither of us are lawyers. I really have no clue, and I don't think you do either. So that's the other thing, though. <laughs> and I'm glad I don't have to go to court to try to defend one way or the other. One more devil's advocate that I don't know if I agree with is that, you know, you mentioned you didn't, if, if you do this, you don't give a chance for the person to say you can't do that. But the whole point of these is that there is no single person in charge of these, like, smart contracts. It's supposed to be entirely distributed there's no one like there's no central bank to say no you can't do that kind of thing oh i get i get it's distributed but the user the owner of the money is supposed to authorize transactions while there's no central government saying yes in doing a third party stamp of approval you mark are always supposed to be able to say yes i'm allowing this money to leave my wallet 
I'm approving of that, whether it's because I clicked on a smart contract or went to however you do it. The owner of the money, forget the third parties involved in doing the transaction, in this case, decentralized blockchain. The owner of the money is who you have to get authorization from because they're the owner of the money. Or in this case, the, the fake bits that constitute money on the internet. Anyways, so like long story short, $322 million worth of Ethereum gone now that does not appear to have any signs of being returned there. And I mean, that's what a third of a billion dollars. So we talked just a bit ago about how but they not much, by the way, because aren't there trillions? Yes, isn't there currently trillions. And it's frankly, a, I mean, it's a huge amount. It's one of the biggest. But there's trillions now in, in cryptocurrency, I think. Yeah. So but back in the day, like it was only 60 million dollars worth of Ethereum that caused the the entire blockchain to fork because of the DAO hack. And now we're talking hundreds of millions. Like it's insane how much this is blown and up. And by the way, this is blown up falsely. The, the, the reason I joke about cryptocurrency is I actually think cryptocurrency will be a thing one day when it's centralized and backed by a trustworthy group and become a standard. But I, I think the value of cryptocurrency right now is BS. It's a total bubble based on all this speculation. So these huge numbers we hear all the time, shoot, maybe it will go up 5,000% in 20 years and I'll be proven totally wrong. And maybe Bitcoin and Ethereum will be worth 0. 0.00001 cent in 10 years too, because there's going to be a real standard out that people will move to. So when I joke about cryptocurrency, it's all these pretend values we're talking about. It's just speculation on the stock market. It's not actually being driven by real market economics, in my opinion. There's companies that are trying to get it there, but I think you need a standardized one that has central backing for trust. That's what my gut tells me too. And especially at least with like Bitcoin, where like it, right now Bitcoin is what, $20,000, $30,000 a coin. Not because it is the fastest, not because it's the has the most features. It's literally it's probably one of the worst now for transactions. Simply because it's the first and it has name recognition. Like first. my mom knows what Bitcoin is. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as like and like that, I said, I think to actually buy things now, I would rather use almost any other of the big cryptocurrencies. Correct. Than Bitcoin almost. You what you're saying? You don't want to pay fifteen dollars in so transaction long. fees just to make a like a yes. pizza purchase and wait. <laughs> it's. And wait. And by the way, the, by the time I wait and the transaction goes through, I learn I added $15 to the purchase because the price changed that much in one hour or whatever. Well, yes, <laughs> it seems like the rest of the world may be slowly agreeing with us because like as of today, Bitcoin has now erased the entirety of its last year's quote unquote earnings. And it's back down to $36,000 from its high of somewhere around like 65000 or something. The, like that. There are literally people out there. I, there's some popular Twitch streamer. I don't follow that crap, so I don't remember his name, where he created a cryptocurrency, bullcrap one, pumped it up, sold it. He, of course, owned tons of it, started selling it, and then immediately left it and took all the money. That that he he basically cashed out his cryptocurrency to others, and he made right under half a million dollars. It's literally point worth point zero 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 one percent, and it was a Ponzi scheme. He did it simply to create a fake, you know. So by the way, to all those making money off the cryptocurrency, I guess great on you for capital and supply demand economics. But we're not saying people won't make money. Uh, but you have to, it's going to drop and there will be lots of losers for the two or three people that are the Ponzi scheme ones that make off and, and promote it and get it to super highs. 
one day there will be a standard. I just don't know when that will happen. I, I don't know which one will win, but I just think it's so dangerous for the people that are considering it investing. That is exactly it. Like Bitcoin, you can absolutely make money right now, but it is literally just day trading at this point. There's no long term for Bitcoin. It is going to be replaced by something better. And it's just you got to hope you make your money be and get out before you become the last person holding the bag. So and if you think about society, you getting out by definition still means there's thousands of thousands of losers that pay, paid paid for your gains. That that's really what it is. There's there's people paying for other people's gains. And, so and unfortunately there's some people manipulating it. <laughs> with all of this like attention on cryptocurrency, like last year alone there were more than 20 incidents where someone stole over 10 million dollars from a crypto exchange or a project like there's huge amounts of money to be stolen in this just by exploiting a simple bug in a program written on the blockchain. Uh, my like we've seen some exchanges start offering more bug bounties to try and find some of these bugs beforehand, but like my gut tells me this is only the the start of the waterfall. Of oh gosh, hundreds of millions it, of dollars. It's totally. And to be frank, ones like Ethereum, where smart truck, like in the one that becomes the standard. I predict it won't have smart contact tracks. I will predict it's going to be as simple as crap and it's just going to, it won't be decentralized. I know that's what libertarians and tax evaders and criminals want, but <laughs> I, I, just talking about the history of the world, money is virtual, but we need trust. I, I mean, money is only stable when there's trust and usually it takes some central authority to establish that trust. Yes, everyone would love to bet for banks and governments that they don't trust to be involved in money, but the truth is money stability is typically because of trust we have in institutions. So I think the one that's real will be simple. Uh, but what blows me away about what you just said, Mark, is I think it's kind of crazy to treat it as an investment purely based on history and economics. But then when you add to the fact what you talked about, it's all experimentation. Ethereal and in, in smart contracts, very cool technical experimentation. What's cool about all the cryptocurrencies now is they really are paving the way to find the standard and to get to it. But you're you're getting in on something that's people playing with code and learning what they can do. And let alone the his, the way money works long term, just the the risk of these vulnerabilities, it blows me away that people are are investing. And, and by people, I actually, technical folks, I kind of expect it because to us, it's interesting. Some of us invest mostly because of the cool concept where it's not like we're putting our savings in it. But for the people that just see it on the news and are thinking of it like stock, uh, what you said, you know, 10 million lost over and over again, these technical problems because we're trying new stuff with it. It's not proven while blockchain itself is kind of proven technology. A lot of these new coins and their additional capabilities aren't. I just don't understand the rise of it. I, I guess everyone wants to make a million dollars fast and they hope that they catch the unicorn that is the standard one day. But statistically, man, <laughs> I feel like you're going up against casino odds. I've got pretty close friends that have in invested, I use the word very loosely, tens of thousands of dollars to buy land in those stupid little meta uh, like NFT land sale things. They've spent like $20,000 to get a plot of land near one that Snoop Dogg owned. Uh, was their selling point yeah. for it. It's the crazy amounts of money. And I, I get it because w 
one day there'll be the one Warcraft or the one metaverse that does take off and the ones that happen to buy the land there. Who knows? You know, I think that's why people do it. There have been proven times where being first in has, but it just seems so unpredictable to me. And, and in cryptocurrencies case, I think your point of the vulnerabilities that we're seeing, not necessarily in the way the transactions are done, but all this, you know, all this framework, as you're talking about the, the bridges and the, the wallet providers and the, all of that is just code and it, it seems to get popped every other day. Yeah. Anyways, I'm looking forward to three weeks from now where we get to talk about the next hundred million dollars theft from Ethereum. So stay tuned <laughs> for that one. Hopefully not. Hopefully not Ethereum. Maybe it'll be a new one. Give Ethereum a break. <laughs> Smart contracts are cool, technically. Yeah. Anyways. We'll and you've see. done some cool stuff in Ethereum. I still am proud of your RSA presentation on it. Cool stuff. That thing definitely needs to be updated. Hey, quite a bit has changed and it's tough for even me to follow along with all those changes now. Anyways. Uh, so moving on to the next story. So in last week's episode, we were talking about how North Korea's Lazarus group, uh, we were talking about their latest malware techniques where they were using Windows Update utility to launch malware payloads, and also how their latest attacks seem to be targeting job applicants to U.S. defense contractors. And during that chat, we kind of offhand mentioned that you know North Korea has previously targeted security researchers, and that also they've actually been experiencing some troubles with keeping their internet online in the last few weeks. And it turns out that that those last two things are actually related. Uh, so Wired broke a story last week where they interviewed a security researcher going by P4X who claimed that they were the victim of that hacking campaign targeting security researchers last year. Uh, they said that they opened a file from another security researcher the day before Google's uh, tag blog post came out highlighting that North Korean campaign targeting security researchers with shared files. Uh, they said that they luckily opened it up in a VM, so the blast radius is pretty small, but they still held on to a grudge from that incident, and they waited for an entire year for the U.S. government or someone else to kind of hold North Korea accountable for targeting private citizens like this. And after stewing on their resentment for a year with no real response from the U.S. government, they decided to take matters in their own hands, and they said that they found numerous known but unpatched vulnerabilities in North Korea's systems that let them single-handedly launch denial of service attacks on various servers and routers, uh, which he, kind of, he equated it to basically a small to medium pen test in terms of you know the amount of resources he had to identify and find flaws in. But through this attack, they managed. And in, in other words, by the way, it sounds like it wasn't a super hard no. target either. It didn't didn't seem like Fort Knox NSA level security yet to break. But through these uh, attacks, I, I think he even mentioned known issues, not new yes. zero day. They were able to bring down every single website that wasn't hosted outside North Korea, as well as the majority of the routing infrastructure too, um, which took down not just websites but also other internet services like email for the entirety of the country. Uh, granted, just uh, impressive no matter what, but believe it or not, there's not many websites as I hear in North <laughs> Korea and there's really not many. It, it's, it happens to be a country that limits internet usage for private citizens. Correct. So a small subset. Uh, it's, a, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little different than taking down all websites in the United States, for instance. Apparently they're not done though. Uh, so they started up an organization they're calling the Funk Project, which stands for FU North Korea. 
uh, in order to recruit. I have strong I have strong feelings about this researcher, but I will give credit where credit is due for that is a acronym, <laughs> a well done name acronym that is actually I won't make marketing fun of. It was it was kind of fun. Yep. And so they're trying to recruit other hacktivists to basically continue these attacks against North Korea until something is done. Like Wired asked them, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to like, you know, get a regime change? And they basically said, no, I just want to get payback until I feel like they've gotten the message and I'm not going to stop until they get the message. This is uh, OK. Let's hear your hot. Take by the way, story. that that is that is scary and problematic to me. I will start by saying you see this headline and even the thoughts of the researcher, the let, let's call him a gray hat at best right now. I have sympathy for him. I, I guess I should speak for myself, but I will say every one of us has probably wanted in a weak moment to do something like this because we know we can. It sucks that the bad guys get to do all this crap and the good guys have to be good guys. But in the same way I talked about, I think what he's doing is very dangerous to the whole world. Uh, so he says he does this because he's sick of not seeing action by governments. But I feel like he's a very immature person that doesn't actually understand how secret agencies work and how governments do do cyber actions. And for all he knows, and for all we know, our governments could be in their systems right now could have been using these known vulnerabilities to have the access and could have been monitoring North Korea for a long time. We know they not only stockpile zero day, but we know they exploit the flaws to to do espionage and to even position means so that if some real bad attack, a country that can is trying to test nuclear weapons does something, the government can use these to do something much worse than annoy. He's basically a script kitty defacing websites and temporarily bringing down routers. Meanwhile, he's showing North Korea a map of every single vulnerability that perhaps our own governments know of and were planning on holding on to in case they wanted to use it for real stuff. And because he's an American doing this, he's inviting retaliation against the whole country because he's a moron that just <laughs> is mad that someone tried to hack him. I know that's like I said, I start with sympathy because I get his I get the wants to do this, the anger, especially if we have the same understanding of exploiting flaws as the bad guys do. But I think what he did is irresponsibly dangerous. Yeah, you know, I'm with you on that. Like the thing that kind of, when I first started reading this, I'm like, oh yeah, heck yeah, go guy, that's fantastic. But then you, when you actually yeah, stop- Yeah, no sympathy it, for them. Correct. Yeah, no sympathy for the, the victim. Right. Uh, in when this you, case, because they've done bad actions. Correct. Uh, but when you actually think about it, like I guarantee the U.S. intelligence apparatus, like you said, is has systems in there that they've got footholds on so that they can run counter espionage so they can potentially permanently or at least longer term take down North Korea's Internet if like it ever comes to a war or something like there's they're definitely interfering, interfering with U.S. operations to some degree. And I bet that's ticking off a lot of people. And plus, like, I mean, North Korea. And besides ticking them off, I, I think it is inviting red. North Korea is not someone that doesn't retaliate. I mean, they took, they literally took down Sony Pictures on the threat that they were going to release an embarrassing movie about someone who should be uh, embarrassed because he's an embarrassing person. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's, I feel like it is basically borderlining on, okay, it's not borderlining. It is time to wrap it up. You know, you made your point. And maybe leave this to the to the government to deal with now. 
you've at least shined an example on, you know, they got some responses out of CISA and out of the FBI out of this for saying, yeah, we yeah. potentially could have done more. The, the responses bear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. You read the responses. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. They were typical government responses that shared some response, but not really. <laughs> but that's the whole point. The government's not going to tell you, oh, yeah, whole world, we have we have backdoors in blah, blah, blah right now. So don't worry about it. Of course they can't say that. I mean, his whole concept of being mad because he hasn't heard the government broadcasting what they're doing. It just it, it just speaks of so immature. Again, I have th- sympathy because I remember a period in my life when I was new in my career where I would have wanted in, to do the same thing and I wouldn't have thought about these different consequences. I just, I, again, it comes down to the ends, not justifying the means. There are times when maybe governments aren't doing as much as they should do. And I, who knows for sure if that's true in this case or not. But I don't think one vigilante... Uh, uh, unfortunately, the world's not like Batman. And despite a vigilante's best intentions, they can actually do worse damage if they don't do things lawfully. And our government actually has more legal authority and has the buy-off of if North Korea decides to retaliate against our entire country because of this one guy, that's his fault. If the U.S. government did something, at least we knew the retaliation was going to come and would be prepared for it. Bad Batman. Bad Batman for sure. I think he needs, uh, what's the guy's name? Arthur, the butler. He needs a Robin and or whatever the butler's name. <laughs> I just I just lost a bazillion points of comic book cred. I hate to say I was more an X-Men guy than a Batman guy. Nerd cred lost. Uh, so moving on now. Uh, Our final update. So last week, Microsoft published an update on research on a sophisticated Mac Trojan called Update Agent. Uh, So, I mean, this is weird because we all know Macs don't get malware. And I feel like this is probably just Microsoft. What are you talking about? Fake news at Mac OS, you know, to bring them down. Totally, totally. No, actually. So the reason (laughs) I wanted to talk about Update Agent is because it's actually been around since September of 2020. And I personally... Uh, found it on one of my friend's laptops that they asked me to go investigate around like seven or eight months ago um, after they had unknowingly installed a quote-unquote update that they had gotten in a pop-up while browsing the internet, unfortunately. Um, So Update Agent's been around for a bit over a year now, about a year and a half. Uh, And Microsoft has been following its progress as they continuously improving evasion and persistence techniques within this Trojan. And the latest update can even bypass gatekeeper controls on macOS uh, for additional payloads it downloads. Basically, the it's got this base agent that it installs first. This is what the user unknowingly or accidentally installs. And it can go grab additional payloads like most Trojans. And when it grabs one of those, it actually uses the X attribute uh, command in order to remove the quarantine attribute from these downloaded files. Basically, anything on Mac that you download from the internet comes with this attribute set on the file that causes Gatekeeper to freak out and ask a bunch of permissions if you actually want to run it. But if you've got sufficient permissions, you can actually just remove that attribute and shuts Gatekeeper up right away. Uh, It also uses this tool or utility called PListBuddy to create PList files under the launch agent folders for reboot persistence. Basically, it sets up a uh, similar to the Windows startup directory or uh, startup Uh, registry entries it adds an entry to automatically execute this anytime you reboot your mac Uh, it's also capable of cleaning up its tracks it can delete all of the files that it touches 
And uh, other than that, though, it's, you know, basic run-of-the-mill remote access. Even more run-of-the-mill. Like, uh, this gives me so much schadenfreude, too, I have to say. I, I mean, I don't want anyone to have malware, but while it's no mystery I'm a Mac user, as Mark continues to tease about, I've never liked the fact that Apple not only ignores but almost fosters the opinion that computer security isn't their problem, that they're they're too secure for that. It's never been true. It's obscurity. They've made a few smart choices like Linux as far as separating root, but there's still a, a system that has vulnerabilities. What cracks me up about this is when they started getting more malware, you could at least joke, at least it seems more sophisticated. This is 101 adware and, and fake fake programs. I mean, this is like the most common and boring ass you know, Windows malware. It couldn't be more crappy Windows malware-like, in my opinion, if it tried, and it totally affects Mac. So I just hope, you know, Mac, you cannot, don't bullcrap people about you being way more secure than everyone. You're making smart decisions now. You have a good security team. I like your secure boot and what you do, but you just got to face the the, the reality that you have flaws too, and you need to fix them. And And frankly, Mac users, you need security software beyond what Mac provides. Gatekeeper's not good enough. Correct. Uh, there's zero excuse to not have some sort of endpoint protection on Mac OS these days. Like you, like Corey said, like you might have been able to fly on the radar historically because it was such a small market share that attackers weren't really focusing on it. But the fact is, like with all the you know developers uh, sometimes favoring Mac OS. Uh, Mac OS deployed all throughout schools these days. Like, there's enough of a market share to make it useful more popular, for an attacker yeah. to go after. So you need endpoint protection for sure. Um, I remember when Metasploit first got its Mac OS shellcode. And to me, that was a change because, you know, like you said, the obscurity, the fact that it, it, at one time it was even a, a different archetype, why well, I guess it is now too with the M1 platform. Uh, but... Once you have public shellcode in a public exploit kit, it's open business for everyone that's not smart enough to understand assembly for a very specific platform. And that passed a long time ago. So I 100% I agree with you, Mark, that it really was that market share obscurity. But now it's because of the same reason you said developers use it. So it's actually a high value target now. Uh, and it's not hard to hack Max. There's there's easy button code already existing. So even someone with me, like me, that no longer is going to be an IDA pro has has pre-built shellcode that uh, I can grab some pre-built vulnerability, pop it in the Metasploit, and there's shellcode that will work. Yep. Recommendations for this specific Trojan, again, are basically the basics. Install security updates. Only install updates from trusted sources. Like, don't just trust a pop-up that comes as you're browsing the internet. Go to the actual Adobe Flash website to install that update for your archaic software. Uh, but also, like, you can By the actually... By way, why don't some... you share the little fun note that... Uh, the, I, I love the little duh in parentheses after that, Mark. <laughs> I, I think it's apt. That is kind of a... It's Correct. advice we're giving, but it should be duh to anyone listening to this. <laughs> Correct. The one bit of, like, kind of at least new or not typically common advice is use tools like there's OSX uh, management solutions where you can actually restrict access to some of these directories, like the launch daemons and launch agents folders, yeah, that's similar to cool. how you might restrict access to the startup Sweet directory tools. to try and hamper some of this persistence. So definitely look into things like that too. But it's still, it's going to boil down to make sure you have endpoint protection installed 
and make sure your users are trained not to fall for stupid fishes like this. By the Sorry way, for the nerds out there, this up for. I, I really like the the launch uh, your the last advice you mentioned. I, I think something that I think you and I probably did long ago, but I had not done my first two years of Mac. Like if you're a, a technical person and you're a Windows power user, you not only figured out the UI, but you were you probably got into CLI. You probably understood how Windows directories and file systems worked. And Mac, by the way, actively tries to hide that from you. Like if you're not going in the terminal, you're just looking at the UI you probably don't know a lot about your Mac file system. If you're a Linux user, you probably might have figured stuff out. But what I'm encouraging the really highly technical users is start to learn all the very interesting and specific things about how Mac OS works that you cannot see in the GUI. You know, understand what Mark mentioned, plist files. Understand all that underlying OS structure. One, it's interesting to do that deep dive if you're nerdy like us, but two, It'd give you a lot better idea of where to look. If you ever see suspicious stuff on your Mac, you know, one of Apple's strengths is really trying to hide the underlying system from users because they want the user just to have a simple system that works for them. They don't have to understand the details and they can't customize it. It's just everything is where you expect it to be and it works. The downside of that is if you haven't done this deep dive to Mac OS yet, there's a lot of, if you do get bad stuff, you're going to have no clue. And so I encourage you to do a deep dive in Mac OS. It's it's actually kind of interesting. A hundred percent, yeah. Uh, because like, man, crap. The first thing I do whenever I get a new MacBook is make sure I bookmark the actual system root drive instead of whatever crappy directory they limit you to uh, and just find her alone. Yep, that's that's why I'm always in I mean, you can, you can expose this stuff in Finder as Mark is kind of pointed out, uh, but that's why, ter man, go into Terminal. You'll find a lot of crap you just probably never noticed if you're only in Finder. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and I guess keep on the eye out for Mac malware because, believe it or not, Macs do get malware. What? Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.